This week, I had a great learning experience with Tim Fung, co-founder and CEO of Airtasker. Tim was kind enough to give disciplined listeners a whole host of useful, detailed, and even poignant insights into what drives him and what should drive startup founders and their businesses. Airtasker was well ahead of the curve in the gig economy, and even though Airtasker is solving a huge problem, Tim is most proud of the impact he has had on the community through the jobs he has created for others by providing a platform to monetize skills. Tim gives great insights into building a marketplace platform and the years of trial and error required to build Airtasker. Enjoy our discussion as you hear from an expert founder. Tim Fung, founder and CEO of Airtasker, co-founder and director Tank Stream Labs. Welcome to Discipline. Thanks for having me. Let's start at the beginning. When you were a young child, what did you want to be when you grew up? uh, I haven't had that question uh, for a long time. I think I went through a couple of phases. I do remember when I was around five or six years old getting asked that question, and I think I said barrister because I thought it sounded like something really powerful and, and awesome. Um, so I remember getting a couple of raised eyebrows from you know older people who were kind of expecting you to say fireman or policeman or something. Um, and then I went through a couple of uh, interesting phases during high school. I think at um, one point I wanted to be you know a professional ice hockey player. Uh, that was kind of a thing for a while. Wayne Gretzky. Yes, that would have been that would have been good, but obviously I uh, didn't have the physical attributes required to do that. Um, or the ice, maybe. Uh, well, no, I did. I did end up playing um, ice hockey during yep. um, during high school and, and early university, um, but I uh, didn't have the skills, I guess, required to be a professional hockey player. Um, then I went through a phase of wanting to be like a hotelier. Yes, and I actually studied that in um, university. I saw you did commerce with a, a focus on tourism and hospitality management. Yeah, so I, I ended up working for a great entrepreneur named Paul Fishman, who was um, who was just in the early stages of starting a business called Eight Hotels. So yep. I was really fortunate to get to work a bit of time with him. Um, then had a bit of time where I wanted to be a, a celebrity talent um agent I and saw that. wanted to be a you know an Ari Gold talent rep you know Hollywood well, agent you want to be Ari Gold it's the best I part. wanted to be yeah, Ari looks, Gold looks pretty fun <laughs> looks pretty fun um but uh yeah then um came across um startups and and being able to um, have an impact on the world through technology and I suppose that's where uh, that's where I am now so you haven't really had a linear progression in your career. You sort of jumped from one field to another, and you also had a focus on uh, a real estate as an investment analyst at Macquarie Group as well in the early days. Yeah. So how did that all come about? Well, I think, um, yeah, I guess um, a, a consistent theme has been I like to be able to go and do things and, and shape something and, and see some impact in, in doing something. Um, and I guess in the early um, stages, I hadn't really figured out exactly what that was, but I definitely liked being able to like jump into something and, and have an impact. Um, so in my younger days, I guess um, you know, I tried different ways of, of making money. Um, you know, a couple of small jobs uh, here and there in uni. Um, we started like a motorsport club because yes. we wanted to be able to you know go to the racetrack without being able to afford to go to the racetrack. So. Always trying my hand at different things. So, as um, well as an ice hockey buff, you're a petrol head. Yeah, I do do like um, <laughs> I do like car racing, especially like Formula One. Yeah, and you know that's um, you know thinking about the the ways that they go about doing engineering and process improvement and optimization and stuff like that. That's definitely 
been an influence. Um, we can on, talk about the uh, Ferrari's orders not working last night <laughs> offline. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a different right. story. Yeah, that's right. Um, but I, I definitely liked it. I, I love the, the way that um, Formula One goes all in. You know, it's all about, um, you know, just doing things at the best level that you yeah. possibly yeah. do them at. Yeah. Um, the sport looks um, boring from the outside, I suppose. And I guess um, that, that's kind of a bit of a lesson, though. You know, the, the most well-run companies, they're probably a little bit boring, right? Yeah. They're doing the right things. Um, they're optimizing. They're moving always in the right direction. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, there's a few wobblies here and there. But I think when you do something really well, it looks easy. Yeah, that's a good call. You move also into a Maysim, um as a strategy and business development manager. Uh, what was the thought process then about this move? Uh, was it strategic or were you sort of sounded out for that role? Well, I, I guess maybe just kind of going through the transition of, so so it doesn't sound so hodgepodge, <laughs> me going left, right. So in uni, um, studied tourism and hospitality, uh, then got the opportunity to join Macquarie. And um, I joined Macquarie in their, um, in their hotel and leisure um, business. Um, called Golf and Leisure at the time, which sounded awesome. Um, and it was through that angle that it ended up in real estate. So yep. um, it kept getting, uh, we kept getting merged and merged and merged into new groups in Macquarie and ended up in an area called um, uh, Macquarie Capital Advisors. Um, I left there in 2009. This is just post GFC. And I wanted to do something a lot more creative. Um, and so I ended up um, applying to go and work at a bunch of talent representation agencies. Um, one of the ones that accepted me was um, a lady named Ursula Hufnagel, who runs a Chic Management. Yeah. Um, and so this was really just wanting... That was a transitional step of wanting to try something it's different. It's quite lateral, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, but my the, the consistent theme there was I figured if you were working with talented, interesting people, interesting things would, would, would happen. And yep. so you should invest into that. Yep. Um, and it was through through working at that agency and meeting the owner and chairman of that agency, a guy named Peter O'Connell, um, that was the segue into studying um, uh, Amazim. Yeah. And so Peter was like an amazing um, entrepreneur and business executive. Um, he had the idea to start Amazim. And so he literally tapped me on the shoulder in the back of the modeling agency and said, hey, let's go and um, investigate this, this, this idea. And I guess that was the first kind of time that I'd seen how, I guess, you do startups, you know, at scale with, with experience. And so... Uh, we were able to raise a bunch of money really early on. Yep. Uh, we were able to bring across um, a, an awesome founding management team and, and build a business from zero to something in you know just a few years. Yes. Um, so yeah, I guess that was the, the transition through um, that experience and you know in seeing you know how to do I guess a startup at scale and learning from some really great entrepreneurs. Uh, that kind of gave me, I guess, the confidence and the inspiration, um, you know, that was needed to, to start something like Airtasker. So this is something that you've seen, um, you know, not deliberately sought out startups, seen it happen, been involved in it early. Um, and what is it now about startups that really appeal to you? Well, I think, first of all, it was really good to kind of get some experience in corporate land um, and then kind of work in a, um, a well-funded um, startup with really experienced founders and then kind of work your way down to to doing it all on your own. Yeah. Um, so that, that was definitely a good experience. So I guess um, I don't um, necessarily think it's just about startups that, that I like. Um, I think 
I definitely do like being able to have an impact as an individual and being able to go out and do something. Um, so I think that's important to me. But really, in relation to Airtasker, it's um, it's actually the space that we're in that I that I really really love and the impact yeah. that we're having on um, on service providers and taskers in the community. That's the thing that I'm really passionate about and. The fact that it's a it's such a broad space that we're in and the opportunity is so massive yeah. um, that, um, yeah, really, I don't think we're ever going to get bored um, in the local services space. It's just such a massive space and has such a massive impact on, on so many people. Let me get into that. So in, in 2012, you founded Airtasker, and it really was one of the early um, sort of gig economy platforms, if you like. And you also helped found uh, Tankstream Labs, which is also... An early version for, for listeners who don't know of on a smaller scale of a WeWork kind of uh, as well. So, 2012 is a pretty incredible year for you. Um, did you know you were ahead of the curve in these two disruptive areas, gig economy and real estate? Mm, so, um, I think back in 2012 it was really interesting. Like um, in Australia and in Sydney, um, there wasn't really a startup scene much at all. I mean, certainly. I think the guys at Atlassian had certainly proven to build a huge business. It was already kind of big by then, but basically there but, was... But in the development community, maybe not in the wider community. Exactly. Yeah. Like there were, you know, and there were certainly software companies in Australia, yeah. um, but there wasn't really people coming up with ideas and there being an ecosystem to, I guess, um, support that. Um, and so, you know, um, I'd had the experience with the Maysim and seeing how that was run, but that was kind of a different kettle of fish because they were such experienced founders. They were able to tap capital and, you know, raise a, raise a round and build a company. But there really wasn't too much else yeah. out there. Um, and so I guess, you know, the idea for Airtasker came about in, in late 2011. Uh, we're really fortunate that we were able to tap um, the investor network that we built through a Maysim yes. and introduce them to the idea and, um We'd, I guess, um, proven um, that we could um, that we could execute at Amazim, and so that made it a little bit easier. Um, but then, I guess, you know, in starting Airtasker, um, we uh, ended up um, being housed in a building which one of our investors owned, and um, it was just really, really fortunate um, that he had said, "Look, I've just leased out this building. Uh, if you want to take some space in the some corner, subletted or yeah, or yeah. no, he he had actually just said, look." Um, you guys need some space. I'm about to renovate this floor and, you know, um, lease it out as suites to somebody. In the meantime, you can have some, you know, cheap rent. Great. So just pay me a couple of grand a month and you guys can sit in the corner of an empty of an empty floor. And um, literally as we were building Airtasker, we would, you know, obviously meet with um, various players in the um, startup community, whether it was like payment providers, whether it was other engineers, um, you know, people um, in various aspects of our product stack, etc. And uh, we literally did just meet them at our office and they were like, this is so awesome because you've got this space in the CBD. You know, obviously it's super hard to um, pre all of this co-working stuff. It was really hard to, to, to lease that kind of space. Like, Service how would you do offices that? cost a fortune. Exactly. Or you'd have to commit, you know, I'm going to have 15 people for the next four years. Yeah. And, so yeah. gonna, and, and no one was willing to do that. So there were so many people just working out of, you know, garages and things like that. Um, I guess, you know, there was Fishburners was around. Yeah. But that was in Ultimo. And it was really targeting, I guess, like the younger ex-university students and stuff like that and so people literally just came and said this space is awesome and um, we said oh, okay cool well you can sit down there and you can pay that guy you know some more money too um, and it, you know he had 
um, initially had plans to like lease it out to like a law firm or accountants or something like that. Um, but because all these tech startups just kind of, you know, started coming in, we were able to like lease out the whole floor in about four or five months. Yeah. And yeah. so he was just blown away by this. Was, this is crazy. And actually, I remember thinking at the time, oh my God, this is such an easier business to start than Airtasker <laughs> because it was just flying off the shelves. You didn't really have the chicken and egg problem. Yes. We had the egg. <laughs> it was the, the building. And, and so we just started flying in. And, and this was well before uh, WeWork got famous or anything like that. Um, That's miles before. Yeah. So, but it was really just solving a, a really genuine problem without a chicken and egg thing. Um, yeah. And that's what made it. What that's what made it take off. And so it was a little bit, I guess, of the community doesn't exist. So we're just going to make our own community, and um, and that's how it kind of took off. So that's come out of a, a need for people to have real estate space. What about the uh, the genesis of Airtasker? How, how for those people who've been living in a cave and don't know what it is, maybe a a quick intro to what it is, but and then how did it come about for you? Sure. So um, Airtasker is a, um, a marketplace for local services, um, and we exist to empower people to realize the value of their skills. So our mission is all about creating a really great place for people um, to work. Um, in doing that, um, we have to create a great um, customer experience for, for our, our posters, the people who want to get stuff done. Um, and so, you know, most people would see the manifestation of Airtasker is um, an app where people can um, post jobs and, and other people would do them. But we're really here to um, to create that, that great um, working environment yep. for, for people. Yeah. Um, I guess um, going back to the genesis of where Airtasker started. So I was uh, moving apartments back in 2011. And, um, you know, being someone in my mid-late 20s, um, I wanted to skimp on on removal uh, costs, and I've got a friend who who runs a factory that um, makes um, frozen chicken products, like chicken nuggets and chicken chippies and stuff like that. He came and helped me move, um, and we literally put um, our sofa and mattress and all that in the back of his of his um, delivery truck. And um, you know, at the end of that weekend, um, after he'd helped me move, it was kind of just like you know, this is the fourth time someone's asked need to help them move because we've got this this truck and so we just started thinking like you know why do we ask family and friends to do all this stuff when you know um there are so many people out there who would love to earn an income yep. by doing this yep. you know the cost of a beer was getting to more than ten dollars um you know in the cbd area um unemployment um and people always say they wanted to earn money and yet we don't do this and i guess implicitly what we'd uncovered is that there is a kind of a low um, level of trust between people in the community. And we kind of felt that it was unfounded. Like so many people would say, oh, would you really let that stranger come yeah. and walk your dog? Would yeah. you let that stranger babysit your children? Would you let that stranger come and clean your house? And whilst trust and safety is incredibly important, we kind of feel like 99.99999% of people do not want to come into your house, steal your things, um, steal your dog, you know, do the wrong thing. Like the vast majority of people want to do the right thing. And so if we could just find a way to create that trust and create a, an accountable, you know, transparent network, then we'd be able to enable so much more stuff um, uh, to happen. And these were foreign concepts back in 2011-12 before Uber and Airbnb really took off and became mainstream. Yeah, for sure. So now we probably, you know, implicitly have these feedback loops within the platforms. We know the trust is there. But back then, it was, it was yeah, a challenge. Yeah, I mean, like, if you had a look at, like, the direction was kind of being set, I suppose, like, 
Because if you look at the early internet, like internet, um, you know, 1.0 in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s, everything was like pseudonyms and um, everything was based like around interest. So you'd have like a different username on, you know, uh, a forum about magic cards. You'd have a different name on a forum about, you know, dating or, you know, you'd have all these pseudonyms and stuff. But we'd started to see that like LinkedIn and Facebook were really kind of saying, no, you can do real world stuff. Um, on the internet. Um, and so we kind of thought that that would probably extend out to, okay, now people have normalized real world interactions. It's yes. not weird yeah. to meet someone on LinkedIn or on Facebook yeah. or anything like Stop that. Stop using avatars and pseudonyms and it's actually you. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and right. we kind of thought that would extend beyond the social um, sphere and into into the real world. And so I guess that was the theme that was uh, behind behind Airtasker. And what and, about the name? Sorry, go on. Well, I was just about to say, like, now it's kind of weird the other way where people, you know, some of the younger guys in our company are telling us that, you know, it's actually weird to um, meet someone, you know, like go dating or whatever. It's weird to meet them in a non-online environment or a right. non-app environment. So it's almost kind of going the other way now where that's become the norm. We're um, mo- moving into... Um the first life, uh, <laughs> fully online world. Is it first life? Well, I was, uh, you mean second world? Or second, second life? Second or life or, yeah. Or, yeah. Well, no, I think, I think um, though, um, you know, definitely I believe very heavily in the real world. So <laughs> it's great to augment it, but, um, yeah, definitely still love the real world. And what about, um, you know, you, you touched on it before, um, two-sided marketplaces. They're notoriously difficult to get going and build out, requiring one side of the marketplace to get up and scaled before the other side of the marketplace mm. decides to join the party. Mm. Um, also quite expensive to, to fund. Uh, so how did you, how did you get it going? You, you've got some money from investors or people you've pitched the idea to. Mm-hmm. So how do you then get into building one side of the marketplace really rapidly? Well, I would say, um, so definitely is a chicken and egg problem, uh, with Airtasker. Um, and it took us probably three or four years, I would say, to get like meaningful um, traction um, into the business, like any kind of like numbers that would actually um, excite people. So it was definitely not kind of like we figured it out and we just scaled it. Um, it was more like we were throwing a lot of stuff at the wall and, and just seeing little bits stick yeah. and kind of, I guess, piecing it together over time. We also kind of gave ourselves the extra um, interesting problem, which is that Airtasker is... Um, an open marketplace. Um, it's a horizontal marketplace, meaning that we we don't just kind of do one little niche. We do a lot of different um, categories, and then it's also a transactional marketplace, which means that it you know you make payments through the platform, um, and so a lot of like trust is required to be built um, over time. Yes, and so it was an incredibly um, you know, challenging version of the chicken and egg, at least like with Uber, you've kind of standardized to one vertical. You yep. only do one vertical, yep. we do transport, this is how it works. That's it, easy. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I think that one of the reasons why marketplaces are successful businesses is because it is hard to build up that initial traction. And so you could say that it's, um, you know, a blessing in disguise in a way. I mean, if you look at something like Uber now, because they were able to, they build a slick product. They were able to really quickly figure out, you know, um, how to spin up one side of the marketplace yep. and then and scale the other. Um, that's actually made it really tough for them now because now everybody else has access to that same intellectual property that they have. And, you know, they're not able to really have any differentiated advantage. And because there isn't really like a strong 
um, ongoing network effect um, advantage because it's a standardized uh, vertical. Um, you know that that's you know just definitely would be seen as a challenge for them now. Yeah, I think. Um, so you know we went through the struggle of trying to figure out which side of the market to scale first, um, whether to go after specific categories or go more broadly and all that. And I would say there that there was no like one magic bullet at all. Yeah. Like there were little bits and pieces, little wins. Where we were like, oh, that's awesome! Like that worked. Um, but I wouldn't say. I would say that our playbook is now made up of about 99 things that don't work and, you know, two or three things that work work, um, pretty well. Um, But even those things, I wouldn't call them silver bullets. Um, And actually, I think a good startup principle is don't look for silver bullets, look for lead ones Yeah, because they work. Yeah, (laughs) yes. Yes. Uh, Old tried and and true, quite often not always the sexy thing. Yes. But and don't be kind of hoping that tomorrow's the day where it's just going to explode. Like, I think it's about doing the right things. Like, if there was a good lesson, it's if you do the right things and do the right things for customers, that accumulates over time. Yeah. Um, and that's what builds out a network effect. And I think the thing that you said there, Tim, that, you know, for listeners is it's a three to four year period before you really get any meaningful, you know, numbers. Mm. So you've tried lots of different things. This is not something that's happened you know, the overnight success, you're talking about a, a three to four year gestation period to, to go, okay, we've actually got something we can work with here. Definitely. And you've obviously had patient investors and shareholders through that mm. uh, who, who've got the, the big picture. The, but for you, was there any time in the journey where you went, what have I done here? This is, this is not going to work. So I think um, over that three to four year journey, what is super, super important is um, – that you believe, I guess, in what you're doing, um, whether that's because it's personally important to you or whether um, it's a mission-driven thing or whether it's, um, you know, just that you, you can articulate the value of what you're doing. Um, but I think that is really what is important because it's super easy to give up. Yes. Like, um, and, you know, three to four years, I guess, in hindsight, can sound like, ah, it's just three to four years, like, not that long. Um, but when you're going through it, it's, like, a lot of days, you know. I think, what's that, like, more than 1,400 times that you have to go to sleep and wake up and, and go do this, you know. for to See, to, like, people call it passion. You've got to have a bit of love exactly. for it. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, 100%. And so, for us, it was really that we could really see the value that we're creating. Like, I would say that I'm reasonably simple-minded in that perspective, which is that, you know, we could just see that people couldn't connect with people in their local service, in their local community to get services done. If we could create this platform, they would, yep. it would unlock that. And we're like, that's really clear yes. exchange of value. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I would struggle if I was, you know, in enterprise software management for, you know, deploying high speed logistics into, you know, Japanese railways or something. I'd be like, Oh, you know, um, and look, I'm sure there are people who that is their space. You know, they could really see that value equation. But for me, you know, um, doing our task was um, really like fundamental value to the community. And that's kind of what um, what kept us going. Yeah, and I think at the front end, you've got something that looks like a problem that needs to be solved. Yep. And you, you've solved that. Um, but then you've got this platform. And I suppose for a lot of listeners, what they may not understand is behind any good platform uh, there's some very powerful software usually chundering away in the background. So I assume you've got uh, artificial intelligence there looking at all the analytics. Uh, how did that side of the business grow to help you focus in on what's working and, and what's not perhaps? Mm. So I think, um, 
if you um one of the things that's been really interesting in Australia, I think, is that we've been able to build some really good, um, you know, deep technology companies. Um, and then, you know, we've recently had a huge amount of success in like SaaS companies, um, you know, the Canvas, Safety Cultures, Culture Amps and things like that. Yep. Um, you know, there have also been some businesses like realestate.com, Seek, Car Sales, which are like, you know, best in class um, for, for their areas too. Um, but I think one of the things that's interesting with, uh, with Airtasker is that, it's really like this kind of O2O space, like online to offline. Um, and so when we started the business, we definitely started it with more of like a, we just need to build traction kind of approach. Um, and so there was a lot of kind of like hacking, just like growth hacking, everything that we could think of trying um, a lot of things. And so I guess early on, we hadn't, we didn't start with a culture of like strong engineering and strong like um, analytics and insights uh, from day one. And it was only a couple of years in after we started to like, you know, see that what we were doing was kind of inefficient. We're like, oh, we've got to really invest into this. Yeah. Um, and so more recently, we've, um, you know, refactored the way that we do engineering at Airtasker. We've got a really um, great uh, VP of engineering, you know, an ex, uh, an ex Googler running that. We've got um, a really strong head of, um, head of data. Um, so we have started investing into those areas over the last few years, but yes. they were certainly not the first things um, that we went out and did. Um, in terms of how we're investing into that, um, so I think the first thing is um, you've really got to have a clean um, basis in which to um, to do all of your data and insights. So I think the most important thing is you have a really strong engineering team, a really strong engineering culture, because even to be able to like track all of this uh, information, to have the triggers set up correctly, yes. all these things, it's really, it's tough. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think then you kind of got a layer on top of that, like um, having great data engineering. So that's another thing on top of software engineering, like having a really great like data warehouse and being able to like capture all that information is super important. And then I would start with just having the insights over that. Yeah, they say the, the, the hardest things to do are set it up to capture the data, but what's even harder is then to actually look at what's meaningful because there's going to be a lot of numbers that get thrown out from this data. Absolutely. Most of it doesn't really drive the business or move sure. the needle. For sure. I mean, I definitely would say the fundamentals of being able to get all of the data in one place and to put a layer on it to visualise it, that is definitely challenging. But you're absolutely right. Uh, we, we have conversations all the time about like the nuances and semantics of different metrics um and whilst that may sound like it would bore the hell out of a lot of people to talk about the difference between gross marketplace volume net marketplace volume closed gross task earnings and like oh how how is that time boxed exactly and you know what's the triggering event for that and are we gonna like what happens if something comes in and then it gets refunded? Does that count as like plus one, minus one, or is that going to be a, a net zero? Well, it could be a whole new class of analytics in itself. Oh, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it actually absolutely drives me mad, some of these conversations. But, you know, we, we've had like three, four-hour meetings, you know, arguing over what exactly how we should define our, uh, yeah. our metrics. And, you know, again, I think it's a staging thing. Um, you know, early on, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, there's probably going to be different focuses. Um but as you, you know, yeah, you keep, scale and optimize. Keeping the lights on. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I wouldn't say that those are like the, the first things that I would probably do, but it's probably like doing all of these things to a fit for purpose level. Yeah. You know, do them to the seven and a half, eight out of 10 uh, level to get started and then optimize over time. Now you look, you look 
for people who can't see you, obviously, but you look pretty fresh. You look like you're uh, well rested. Um, in the early days, though, did you underestimate how much effort and time and energy was required to to run a, a startup, to run Airtasker? Oh, I remember I actually, um, when we had first started Airtasker about two months in, I remember running into an ex-Macquarie um, colleague and, and telling them that I'd started, like, an internet business. Um, and they were like, oh, so you get to sit on the beach a lot. That's great. You must get a lot of time to do thinking and stuff like that. And I was just like, I, I don't, I don't think you understand like what we're going through. Like this was twenty four seven, seven yeah. days a week, yeah, just brutal. And that doesn't mean we're in the office seven days a week, twenty four seven, but it's on your mind Constantly. more than you know, yeah, just more than you can imagine. Like you literally dream about this stuff, or you wake up going, oh my god, have I done this? Have I done that? Yeah. Um, and and certainly, I think, um, and it's probably a good level of naivety to have. But if you thought about that stuff before you started, I'm almost certain rationally you would not start it. And you, no doubt, you, you know, dealing with a lot of transactions, some of them probably went quite badly in the early days as well. Do you take them personally as a founder? Oh, I mean, we, we got smashed from all angles. Um, and especially when you're starting a marketplace um, business because it is an ecosystem. And, and that means that what's good for some people isn't good for everybody. So, um, you know, you might say, hey, we really want to offer a new way of taking payment on the platform. There's two choices you can make. You can either say, well, the people who are going to use it, they can pay 5% more to use it. Or you can say, or everyone's going to just um, have the option to do it, but you're all going to get slugged with a 2% you know, fee for doing that. Now, certainly, whichever way you go there, you're going to hear complaints yep. you know, from one side or the other side. And that's totally valid because in, in that person's frame of reference, you know, the decisions it's you make either suck or, or, bad or they're decision awesome. for them, yeah. Exactly. But um, I think that um, yeah, definitely in a platform business, you are getting hammered on all sides yeah. um, in the other Because very few people would go, that was a fantastic decision that you made. Thanks for thanks doing for, that. Well, thanks um, for charging us an extra 2%. Exactly. But, but you know, it was, it was really great. One of the great things about starting a company like Airtask is you could meet the people that you were having an impact on. Yes. Um, and that was like seriously profound. Um, for me, that was really profound. For our employees, um, they would go out and meet people. People, you know, uh, when we're dog fooding our own product, getting your house cleaned or, you know, um, using using the service, people would just say, you know, you've really changed the way that, you know, I've been able to live my life. Like, you know, I've made redundant from a job and Airtask is giving me a, a safe, um, you know, a safety yeah. net for, from doing that. Um, so that, that did definitely fuel and inspire us to, to keep going when it got crap. Well, you know, funny you talk about that. I had a friend the other day who'd been made uh, redundant in his uh, 50s and really struggling to find work, been out of work for a while, and, you know, Airtasker came up in conversations. I said, yeah. look, you know, it's not ideal, but if you really need money, mm. there are lots of different jobs that you could do, uh, and one of them you probably enjoy. So how do you feel now that that kind of, uh, you know, Airtasker has entered the vernacular you know, almost like a noun, so I'll just airtasker it. Yeah. Oh, well, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, it's really cool. Um, but I think, you know, we're such a small fraction of the way um, through through the opportunity that we have um, ahead of us. So, you know, I think it's definitely just like heads down and, you know, step back. It's definitely lovely to hear, um, you know, these cool anecdotes and stuff like that. But we're, we're just so unsatisfied with where the business is now and what we think it can, what we think it can do. Um, we kind of feel that like if you have a look at the traditional way of work, like nine to five, 
Um, this is your responsibility. Just do this and do this for the next five years of your life or 10 years of your life. It just does not fit to uh, what consumers want um, and it doesn't fit to the way the world, you know, the direction that the world's going in where everything's about flexibility and yep. being able to move fast and, and change the way we do stuff. And so, um, yeah, we just think that the opportunity is, is, is so massive that we can't really stop, you know, to smell the roses too often. And and you do still use your own dog food because rumour has it this morning you tried to air task a, someone else to do this podcast with me. Um, <laughs> well, no, last, I, I think in the last few weeks, I, um, I, what have I, I've had um, someone do my uh, leaf guttering. Yeah. Um, I've done, um, I've had a new cleaner uh, come in. So, yeah, definitely using the product a lot. And that's one of the great things is, as you build a platform product, um, network effects as well as, you know, product optimization comes in and actually makes the product better um, over time. So it's almost like a, a vintage wine or something. And, and and just to let you know, this whiteboard or blackboard, whiteboard, glassboard behind us, I had the exact one removed from our office and I thought I could carry it down the stairs by myself and I couldn't because it's actually, it's actually very wide. And uh, we got a, a young Englishman in via Air Tasker who picked it up uh, single-handedly put it in his van and it was just the time you know everything was so quick everything was so much easier so I'm a big advocate for it and it definitely you know solved a problem and it was my sister who said it's an you know just air tasker it mm. so well I think it does really so one of the core things that is really central to our beliefs is that um, every single person has unique skills and um, I think you know, again, if you look back at traditional work, certain things were defined as skills, you know, accounting, um, being a medical doctor, they were skills. But if you were able to do some knitting or you were able to fly a drone or one of these things, it was just kind of like, oh, that's not really a skill. That's yeah. just like a hobby. Yes. Um, but my view on that is everybody, like if you create a way for people to monetize those skills and earn a living from those skills and other people find those skills useful, then, you know, they should be treated like uh, skills. And, and by that definition, I'd say this guy had a van and he was either had a bigger wingspan or he's stronger than, than, than oh, I should say, but um, you know, <laughs> had the ability to, to be able to do something that you might not have been able to do on your own. And, and that's that should be something that we recognize and, and give that person a way to make money from that. I wanted to ask, in the early days, um, you did some partnerships with like the good guys and IKEA. Mm. And I've been involved where... As a, as a young business working with bigger companies, um, you sometimes don't get the value equation quite right. And I have a saying, when you're a mouse and you dance with an elephant, even if it's accidental, sometimes you're going to get stepped on. So did those uh, relationships deliver the sort of value you'd expected? Um, so I would say we've definitely been on a journey when it comes to how we, um, how we work through the Airtasker platform. Um, and how we build out the ecosystem of partnerships and stuff like that. So our long-term view is that we're building out, um, you know, an entire ecosystem around the local services marketplace. And I think partners will definitely be a big, uh, big part of that. Um, basically, as we went along in the early days, we saw our leverage kind of changing as we expanded as a business. So as we came move from a mouse to a cat or you know, whatever analogy um, as, as we kind of grew. And so the first partnerships that we did, we had to go back and re-engineer those ones. Yep. Um, but certainly as we were able to get some good leverage, we've started um, 
thinking about how we could make partnerships work for us. And so we've done a couple of di- different iterations um, of those. And and recently we've come out, I've just literally walked out of a meeting um, talking about um, uh, Airtasker um, instant booking platform. And I'm definitely um, excited about the future partnerships. And, you know, if you're in a platform business, it, it, it's core yes. um, to, to growth. Um, but I think it is worthwhile saying that you can definitely get overly excited about um, partnerships in the early days when you just hear, oh, that person has a million active customers a day or whatever. Yes. You're like, well, surely we should be able to get 5% of those. That's what I was, um, that's what I was driving at. I think, you know, uh, as a startup, you view this as potentially the holy grail, but sitting on the other side of the fence as a big corporate, you're going, let's try this. Let's pilot it and see if it works. Yeah, for sure. As I mean, I think it's, it's not great to rely on partnerships or the overly kind of, you know, banking on them. Let's just say that. What about capital raising? Uh, personally, I have a, a love-hate relationship with how the startup community celebrates capital raising. Uh, you've raised a, a decent whack of capital at many different stages. Um, what's your approach to capital raising now? So I would definitely agree with the sentiment that it's kind of unhealthy the way that the um, the market looks as you know at capital raising as the ultimate form of kind of success. Um, yeah, I mean, now that we, we look at it as a business which is, you know, at, at a medium up, um, scale, um, when you see how much money uh, people are raising, you, you're often kind of thinking, well, geez, you must be burning a lot of money to need to raise that. And I think actually the reason why I think it was, um, you know, raising capital was um, inspiring, I guess, in the early stages of the internet was that people were investing into like platforms. They were investing into like technology. And the whole point was if you invest in this great technology, then you would get these incredible margins once you started selling that yep. technology. And so I guess raising money kind of equal building amazing technology. And then it was always kind of implied that once that money had been spent, the technology was built, you'd be able to scale the hell out of that. Um, but I think now, um, raising money has become proxy for doing a lot of marketing and, you know, sales and things like that. And if you kind of have a look at the venture thing, um, that's kind of broken, right? Because at some point you want to stop raising money and have a high margin, high leverage and make money. business <laughs> and, and, and make money. And so, yeah, I've definitely got, you know, a bit of a love-hate relationship with that, um, with that too. Um, that said, if you are building like a technology business, you need to raise money that's fit for purpose for building that business. Um, And certainly, as you mentioned, building a marketplace, um, you have a combination of investing into, um, you know, core technology, but you also have an investment into building initial liquidity. Yep. Um, but once that asset's built, then you can, you can, um, then you can scale it, um, and, and, and create um, high margins out of that. Um, so yeah, I think raising money, um, definitely something that if, you can go back to the five whys and like get to the fundamentals of like, why do you need this money? It doesn't make sense. Then absolutely um, go do it and make sure it's fit for purpose. Um, but I think we're seeing now with things like the WeWorks and, you know, even the Ubers and Lyfts um, that uh, raising money and having a high burn uh, company um, can put you in a precarious kind of position later on. Yeah, I saw a, a, a review of WeWork the other day and, and all of a sudden analysts are coming to start up techs with something that they said hadn't been seen for years a calculator and um, that may change the way people view uh, how they value some of these businesses for sure. as well yeah um, for people looking from the outside in you know they see a lot of uh, wonderful things with startups they put uh, founders on a pedestal you know the new rock stars 
But it's not always uh, wine and roses. Uh, you've definitely had some challenges uh, with this business, um, R&D clawbacks, wage setting, insurance queries, trademark use. You know, people uh, question your sanity about uh, going for platform growth initially rather than profitability. Um, and you're working so hard. How, how do you decompress? How do you stay sane in these environments? Well, I definitely think uh, you're right about, um, you know, where the founder or the CEO kind of sits in the business, which is at the very bottom. Like mostly things funnel down and you got to catch a lot of moving balls. Um, I guess in terms of um, decompressing, I think what is good is to try and draw some um, some boundaries. So one of the things that I would... Um, think that I try or aspire to doing is sort of setting some boundaries on time. So, you know, um, get in the office at seven, leave the office at seven. That's my kind of day. And when I'm at home for those last few hours of the day, you know, I'm not working. You know, sometimes I'm reading a book about work or something like that, but it's something that, you know, I'm really sprinting for that period of time, which I set um, to sprint. And I think you can get better at lengthening um, that period of time where you can sprint hard. But I definitely think like that's definitely helped me to to draw that line. I also draw the line mostly with the office or getting out of home. Like I don't do a lot of work in my home. I'll if I want to go and um, write a blog post or something, I'll go to a cafe and do that. Or if I'm, um, or you know, come to the office or go to a co-working space to to do stuff and try to keep that out of you know writing emails in your bed and, and, and stuff like that. So I think drawing boundaries is a great way to do that. The other thing that's good is to. Um, is to do some things that force your mind um, out of work. Um, so I enjoy rock climbing yep. or car racing. Yep. Those are things where you're not definitely not <laughs> thinking about work when you're, you know, trying to keep a car on the road or thinking when you're breaking in the apex. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think um, having some hobbies. And I guess um, one thing that I was advised on, and I think it's something that you probably can't do in the first two to three years of a startup. I think in the first two to three years of a startup, you know, you're pretty much all in. You're all in. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I now do is try to like set some um, things early on in the year. Like, so set out, I'm going to go to these six race events and I'm doing that and things are going to work around those things. Because I think if you try to plan on like a weekly basis, you'll never go and do them. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Well, um, just going to finish off with a bit of a quick fire round now. Who is your favorite comedian? Oh, that's uh, that's really tough. I'm going to say Bill Hader because I just watched uh, it on the weekend. Formula One driver Michael Schumacher. I was going to say if it wasn't Senna or Schumacher, I was going to question your bona fides <laughs> there. Uh, favorite band? Oh, band. Oh, I'm going to sound really lame if I say this, um, but I was always into pop music, so I'm just going to go with like Backstreet Boys. Or something <laughs> like that. No, you're not the first to go with Backstreet Boys. Um, fondest childhood memory. Uh, I went to Disneyland when I was eight years old. Very memorable. Oh, it was, uh, you know, when you're eight years old, everything's just magical. Um, and so The happiest place. And, the and it's, it's kind of larger than life. I think, and you know, that's one thing I do like about um, America. They go all in. You yeah. know, when they make Disneyland, it's like, wow, it's a yes. different world. Yeah, it is a different world. Um, most memorable smell. So I have a really poor uh, sense of smell, um, so I don't really uh, go with that. But I will say Royal Copenhagen's, uh, you know, the waffle, the waffle kind <laughs> oh, of yes. smell. We're walking really, down the street and you yeah. can smell it a mile away. Yeah. Who is the person, dead or alive, you would most like to have lunch with? I probably would go with Steve Jobs there. 
what advice would you give to anyone about to embark on a startup journey? Make sure you really understand the value of what you're doing and you're passionate about um, the fundamentals um, of the impact that you could have. Because um, if you don't, you're probably going to find it hard to get through some of the pain. And lastly, what's next for you? Uh, so Airtasker has you know, been my passion for the last eight years. And I think um, you know, for the foreseeable future, this is uh, where I'm going to be. I think the opportunity is just so massive and the opportunity to have an impact on people's lives is, is something I'm really looking forward to doing for a long period of time. Brilliant. Well, Tim, thank you for your time away from Airtasker to speak with me and the listeners today. Uh, Thank you for your generosity and your insights and thank you for being on Discipline. Great, thanks for having me.